Welcome to Legal Finance Insights, the podcast that takes you inside the legal finance industry. I'm your host, Pip Murphy, CEO of the Association of Litigation Funders of Australia. Join me as I interview key players, uncover the latest trends, and provide invaluable tips and tricks to accessing, obtaining, and using legal finance. We hope that Legal Finance Insights becomes your go-to resource for enhancing and improving your understanding of the legal finance industry. Thank you for joining us today for the second Legal Finance Insights podcast. Today, I'm joined by Maya Shalita. Maya is Alpha's company secretary and an investment manager with Balance Legal Capital. Maya joined the team at Balance Legal Capital in January 2019 as an associate and was promoted to investment manager in 2022. Maya is a litigator who has practiced in the areas of commercial litigation, property and family law. In 2017, Maya moved to London where she worked as a case manager at the Health and Care Professions Council. Maya has a Bachelor of Laws and a Bachelor of Communications from the University of Technology, Sydney. Today, Maya and I are going to talk about the basics of legal finance, the 101 if you like. So let's start with what is legal finance? Well, litigation funding, also known as legal finance, is when a party involved in a dispute or litigation is provided with funds to pay some or all of their litigation costs. The party providing the funds typically has no direct role in the dispute or litigation other than the provision of the funds. Whilst legal finance can take different forms, including funding provided by a commercial litigation funder, an arrangement with the law firm that will defer certain costs and insurance for certain aspects of the litigation. It usually refers to an arrangement with a commercial litigation funder called a third-party litigation funder. Third-party legal finance involves a third-party, the litigation funder, as I said, providing funds to a claimant to fund the costs of their involvement in a court case. In return for providing these funds, the litigation funder will typically seek a return of its funding plus an agreed portion of what the funded party receives from the case. Usually, legal finance is non-recourse, meaning that if the funded party is not successful, the litigation funder will not receive repayment of its funding or any return on the investment. This is the primary difference between legal finance and a loan. Whereas a loan must be repaid, the litigation funder will not receive any payment, including the return of its funding, unless the funded claim is successful. Now, Maya, could you talk about how these legal finance arrangements work in practice? No worries, Pip. So once a litigation funder has determined that it's prepared to offer funding for a claim, it will provide the claimant with a suite of funding documentation, which will comprise of a number of documents the key one being the litigation funding agreement, which will set out the rights and obligations of the funder and the claimant. So typically, the litigation funding agreement will include, number one, the amount of funding being offered and the fee or commission which the funder seeks to charge, in addition to reimbursement of the sum it has expended on legal costs and or disbursements. Number two, it will usually include an indemnity which the funder is prepared to offer the claimant so that if the claim is unsuccessful, the funder will pay the costs of the other side. This may be an unlimited indemnity or it may be capped at a certain sum. If the indemnity is capped, then the claimant needs to bear in mind the risk that if the claim is unsuccessful and the other side's costs are higher than the indemnity, then the claimant might have to pay 
the amount above the cap. So the services which the funder will provide in addition to providing the funding for litigation, this may include consulting with the lawyers and claimant in relation to things such as strategy, facilitating reports to the claimant, reviewing the lawyer's costs on an ongoing basis. The funding agreement also typically includes an acknowledgement by the claimant that it will cooperate with the lawyers and the funder and follow reasonable legal advice given to it by the lawyers, that it won't deal directly with the defendant in a class action, and that the representative will provide instructions to lawyers in relation to the management of the class action on behalf of other group members. So the litigation funding agreement also usually includes an authority provided by the claimant for the funder to provide day-to-day instructions to the lawyers to progress the claim. This is usually in a class action context. However, it's important to bear in mind, Pip, that if there's a divergence of interests and instructions given between the claimant and the funder, the lawyers must ensure that the claimant's interests are adequately protected. The funding agreement also includes terms which outline when a funder or a claimant can terminate the funding agreement and the consequences of any termination. We also deal with the processes for complaints and disputes between the claimant and the funder should they arise. And there's often an acknowledgement by the parties that the funding arrangement and information conveyed between the parties in relation to the claim is to be kept confidential. So, After the parties have agreed the terms of the funding arrangement, they'll sign the funding agreement and the funder will start paying legal costs, which includes often professional fees and disbursements, and in some occasions just disbursements only. The funder typically remains Tains a monitoring role, which will vary from case to case. In a class action context, the funder is usually empowered to provide day-to-day instructions to the lawyers with the representative, the claimant who is representing the entire class and who is named in uh, the pleading, the statement of claim, also providing instructions to the lawyers. However, as mentioned previously, There are often protections in place, usually in the law firm relationship agreement, to ensure that if there's a conflict of interest that arises between the funder and the claimant, then the lawyers ensure that the claimant's interests are adequately protected. So, Pip, I wondered if you could give us a bit of background into the typical fees that are charged by litigation funders. The fees charged by litigation funders depend, as you would expect, on a number of factors, including the strength of the claim that it's being asked to fund, the value of the claim, the amount of funding required, where the claim's up to. So, for example, we're looking at have the proceedings been commenced? Is the claim close to mediation? How far away is trial? Or the time that's likely to take to achieve a resolution of the claim? Timing of resolution is important because the longer it takes for a claim to resolve, the longer the litigation funder has to wait for its funding to be repaid and to receive the return on investment. So unlike a standard loan, the litigation funder doesn't receive any interest on its funding whilst it's waiting for the claim to resolve. So timing is important. Third-party litigation funders typically enter into funding agreements in which they undertake to fund 
a claim on the condition that if the claim is successful, that they're repaid their funding in full, plus they're paid a fee or a commission, which is equivalent to a certain percentage of the amount that the funded party receives at the end of the case. Litigation funders traditionally charge a commission and it's usually in the range of 20 to 40% of the claim proceeds received. Sometimes a litigation funder might charge a fee or commission based on a multiple of the amount of the funding it's agreed to provide rather than a percentage of the claim proceeds. If a litigation funder is involved in funding a class action and it settles or it's successful at trial, the litigation funder may ask the court to make an order requiring all members of the class to contribute to the repayment of the funder's costs So these are the monies that it's paid to fund the costs of the class action in particular, plus pay the funder a fee or a commission equivalent, as I said, to the percentage of the total claim proceeds. They can ask for that regardless of whether the claimant has signed a funding agreement. It's typically called a common fund order or a CFO. However, in a class action which has been commenced in court, ultimately any deductions from a settlement or a judgment can actually only be paid to the funder if the court approves them as being fair and reasonable. Maya, could you talk a little bit now about what are the benefits of legal finance? Yes. So there are a number of benefits of legal finance, but I'm going to focus on three today. The first is removal or mitigation of financial risk. So as we all know, litigation is expensive and often the course it takes and the outcomes are unpredictable. So if a funder agrees to fund a case, it will pay all or some of those costs. And if the claim is unsuccessful in court, the funded party will typically owe the funder nothing because the finance that's provided isn't on recourse. If the funder has also agreed to provide an indemnity to the funded party, which I spoke about before, then this also protects the funded party from having to pay the other side's costs if the claim is unsuccessful. So in this way, the involvement of a funder can remove most of the financial risks associated with the litigation. The second benefit that I wanted to touch on was the objective assessment of the claim. So a funder will assess an application for funding using various criteria, including the strength of the case, the value of the claims, how much it will cost to run the case and whether the other side will be able to pay the claim if it is successful. This means that an external third party has considered the claim and if it's entered into an agreement to fund the claim, that's an indication that it considers the claim is essentially a good investment. The funded party has the benefit of that independent review having been conducted by the funder. The funder will often continue to assist with strategy as the case progresses and will bring to the claim the benefit of its experience in litigation, not just in relation to the legal issues, but also commercial factors which may be involved. The final benefit that I wanted to speak about was the equality of arms for class actions. So in a class action context, often it's not practical for an individual claimant to bring only their claim because the costs and risks of litigating an individual claim will usually outweigh the value of the claim itself. Importantly, the involvement of a funder in a class action addresses the risk that the defendant may outspend the plaintiffs in pursuing their legal defence. Equality of arms is important to achieve justice in the adversarial civil justice system, and the costs of a class action are significant, typically in the millions of dollars. In this way, it can be said that a funder may level the playing field, ensuring that these claims are considered on their legal merit rather than how much money the parties have to spend on the litigation. 
So psychologically, the involvement of a funder can signal to the other side that an independent third party has determined the claim is a good investment and is prepared to back it. Pip, I wondered if you could just speak a little bit about the risks of legal finance. I wanted to talk about two risks, the first one being the financial risks of legal finance. If a funder has provided an indemnity, as you talked about a minute ago, to the funded party um, in relation to adverse costs, but it's capped, there is the risk that if the claim is unsuccessful, that the funded party may have to pay an amount of the other side's costs which exceed that cap. So even if the claim is successful, the cost of litigation might be so high that after repaying the funder its funding and paying its commission, that there's also not a lot of funds left for the claimant. This risk is generally offset by the court having to provide, as I'm talked a little bit about before, approval of all fees being paid to the litigation funder in any class action. So there are a couple of financial risks attached to legal finance. There's also the risk of the funder terminating the funding agreement. They may do that in certain circumstances which arise during the course of litigation. And they may be things like the prospects of the case significantly diminish during the course of the case or the value of the claim falls below a certain level. If that happens and the funder terminates the funding agreement, then obviously the funded party needs to find a replacement funder. If they can't find a replacement funder, the case may need to be discontinued. So they are a couple of the risks associated with entering into a, an arrangement with a funder. I think next it would be great, Maya, to talk about the different types of claims that are funded and how we've seen that changing over the years. Yes, yeah, sure, Pip. So legal finance in Australia is neither new or novel, but I would say that it's evolved beyond its historical use in class actions and insolvency proceedings. So in addition to class actions and insolvency claims, we now see legal finance being used for arbitration and high-value commercial disputes, including those for well-capitalized corporates who are preferring to keep litigation off their balance sheet. So some of the types of claims that are being funded generally include, and I'll just list these off, we've got securities, employment, agriculture, forestry and fishing, mining and resources, data tech, privacy and cybersecurity, which I'll touch on a little bit later on, tax disputes, high net worth individuals, ESG claims, business interruption insurance claims and franchising disputes. In the class action space in the last year, the number and proportion of new actions involving a litigation funder actually sits at similar levels to the past three years, which sees the percentage of class actions that are being funded sitting between 40 and 50%. So, since the Money Max decision in 2016, most of the funded class actions in Australia over the last seven years fell into three sorts of categories. We've got shareholder class actions, consumer protection class actions, and product liability class actions. We've seen an increased importance in the last seven years on product liability and employment class actions, and a decrease in the importance of investor class actions. In terms of the last year, so about 2022 to 2023, we've seen an uptick in funded data breach class actions, which I understand Pip, you'll touch on later. In the non-class action space, there are have been two areas that have been looked at by funders over the years, but which have been difficult to fund. These are 
IP cases and construction cases. I think the reason these have been traditionally difficult is because of the problems with the calculation or quantification of damages. This is changing with more IP and construction cases being pitched to funders and some of these slowly getting through the DD and funding process. This is very slow and funders are careful about what they fund. Essentially, the cases that are funded are ones where the legal liability is strong, quantum or at least reasonable minimum quantum can be identified, and ones where recoverability is also clear. Of course, there is no point in winning a case and not being able to recover your damages or loss. So Pip, I thought you could talk a little bit about the emerging or notable trends in the funding market. Absolutely. Um, And there have been a lot in recent times. This is a constantly changing industry, um, as we both know. I think the first one to talk about is just in brief changes to the ATE market. What we're seeing is an increase in collaboration collaboration between funders and insurance companies. There are more funders and more claims. So we are seeing an increase of insurers in the market. It is still dominated by overseas insurers, however, as most would know. There's a move from a fixed cost of insurance at the outset of the matter to a bit more of a staged approach being paid at different milestones during the life of a matter. So for example, you might pay 5 to 15% upfront when the policy is taken out. You might pay a further 10 to 15 at the mediation and then a further amount if the matter is not settled within eight weeks of trial. There is also a move towards undertakings being given by funders, at least initially, instead of the full and costly indemnity from the insurer. And the driver amongst these two things in particular is keeping costs of insurance to a minimum. The Australian market is starting to see ATE insurance offer um, offered over case portfolios rather than necessarily on a case-by-case basis. I think this has been happening for a little while, but this may result in insurers taking on smaller claim quantum if they're grouped in a portfolio. There's been an increase in insolvency claims, particularly in construction. We've seen the likes of Grocon, ProBuild, that's just to to name a few. I think that we are definitely going to see insolvency claims over the next 12 to 18 months on the increase. We've seen increases in ESG claims. There's a rise of class actions in the ESG space for public and private companies. Climate issues remain at the forefront of the ESG litigation. Social and governance claims are growing in prominence. We've seen First Nations claims. We are seeing an increase, as you mentioned before, Maya, of data breach cyber claims. We're seeing Optus, Medibank, Woolworths. We're seeing a rise in malware, brute force attack, ransomware. The list of names goes on. Most recently, we saw a class action brought against Medibank Bank by Banker and McKenzie and Omni Bridgeway. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that case plays out and in particular the loss and how that's calculated. We are seeing an increase in tax-related claims, an increase in underpayment of wages claims. That has been a Around for a little while, but it doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. There is a talk of an increase in crypto claims. There are significant claims in the US, and there is a lot of talk about this coming to Australia. We haven't necessarily seen it yet, but I think there is some signs that that is going to be an increased area or a new trend in funded litigation. Maya, I thought you could talk a little bit about the types of funding arrangements and how that is also changing. 
I think the options available to litigants in terms of the type and variety of funding arrangements is increasing. That's due to a few factors. Firstly, an increase in the number of legal funders in the market. And so there are many more ways to access legal finance. Secondly, there's also been a rise of firms running cases on a no-win, no-fee basis. Thirdly, we've seen more firms in Victoria running cases on a contingency basis. So some of the available options for legal finance are traditional legal finance, funding a single party or representative proceedings. This may involve funding both legal and professional fees and disbursements or disbursements only. There's also seed funding, which is providing funding for early stage claim development. We've also seen an uptick in portfolio financing, which I'll touch on a little bit later. There's claim purchasing, defence funding and judgment enforcement and asset recovery funding. So as I said, the main area of change is in the law firm portfolio area. A number of funders have in place portfolio arrangements with law firms. These arrangements are still novel, but the benefit of this is that the funder can cross-collateralize its funding across a number of cases in the portfolio and not be solely reliant on a win in one claim to recover its commission. It ultimately creates flexibility and better pricing structures which assists the plaintiffs as they usually can recover more. I wondered if we could briefly talk about the impact of the regulatory changes on legal finance since 2020. Absolutely. I don't think we can finish this podcast, Maya, without talking about regulatory changes in the funding industry. It's been a a huge part of the funding industry over the last couple of years. In 2020, if we summarise it, because it is a, a long history, in 2020, the Australian government introduced regulations seeking to reinforce a 2009 decision of the full court of the federal court in Australia that said that legal finance, when utilised in a class action, was a managed investment scheme. In 2022, the full court overturned that 2009 decision, holding that third-party funded class actions were in fact not managed investment schemes and not subject to regulation pursuant to Chapter 5C of the Corporations Act. In 2023, following the federal election, the Labor Party then wound back the regulation of legal finance through the Corporations Act. So this is a long history of confusion about managed investment schemes and funds. During this period of uncertainty, what we saw was funders either securing an AFSL themselves or um, they ran their class actions under another funder's AFSL. There was a huge amount of wasted time and money um, addressing these regulatory changes. It was a really frustrating time. Class actions certainly did slow down for a period of time while everybody got their house in order. But I think the one thing that um, I took from from all of this was it reinforced for me the collaborative approach that litigation funders typically have which, with each other. And I really think that that actually strengthened the industry and made it better for those people that are actually participating, so law firms, claimants and the like, to have a really collaborative, we're all competitors obviously, but 
but very collaborative with each other to actually work through these regulatory changes, I think was actually a really positive outcome. So now the landscape reverts to where it was. Things have become a bit more settled. The pace of claims being run in the courts is back to where it was before, if not slightly higher. There's no doubt that the courts, the backlog in the courts from COVID is still an ongoing issue for funders and parties in litigation. But I think we're all back to normal and seeing even higher cases in the courts now. So that is a good sign. Thank you, Maya, for assisting today to talk about the 101 of legal finance. We have covered an enormous amount of material and I'm sure over time we can drill down to each one of these topics in a little bit more, but really just wanted to say thank you to you for assisting to give the listeners an overview of what litigation finance is. So we hope that's given everybody some insights into legal finance and and how legal finance is used in Australia. So thank you, Maya, for your time today. No worries, Pip. It was my absolute pleasure. Hi there. That's a wrap for the Legal Insights podcast for today. We hope you have picked up some useful tips and tricks and enjoyed listening to all things legal finance. If you want to continue the conversation, please reach out via email or via the website, associationoflitigationfunders.com.au. We would love to discuss what you are seeing in the legal finance industry and what we can do to enhance and improve it together. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.